it was nice to have an expert on actually to just explain some of this stuff because even though I did do geomicrobiology at one point in my life I'm definitely not an expert yeah I think it's cool to have somebody who really is a doctor on <laughs> not yet a doctor yeah. for once <laughs> that's true yeah what does that say about our podcast now are we is it false advertising now that we've had a doctor on <laughs> Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the show that takes you to ubiquity and beyond. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Thank you. My name is Sienna. I am a PhD student at McGill University doing a PhD in neuroscience, I guess. (laughs) You guess? (laughs) I'm more confident about it someday. (laughs) (laughs) That's research. My name is Beth, and I am apparently doing my PhD at (laughs) Sapienza University of Rome in particle physics. And my name is Alistair, and I am presumably doing a PhD in analytical chemistry at Queen's (laughs) University in Kingston, Ontario. (laughs) If anyone actually knows whether whether any of us are actually doing a PhD... (laughs) Write in to (laughs) phd32b at gmail.com. Maybe it's one of those things where we can know whether we're doing a PhD or who we are, Mm. but not both at the same time. (laughs) The PhD three uncertainty principle. Exactly. (laughs) It could be. It could be. So um, I was saying this to Alistair kind of before you got on, Beth, but this episode, I started with an idea of what I wanted to do an episode about. I found somebody to interview the interview kind of went in a slightly different direction or at least there's like a little bit more emphasis on another topic so now this is just gonna meander I think this is gonna be a bit of a meandering episode from topic to topic but I think it'll be really fun and interesting because the interview was super fun and interesting to do okay um, I am very in for a meander into (laughs) science Mm -hmm. that's always good to meander around a little bit of science we're gonna meander around the world too And maybe even meander to other worlds. Oh, I love meandering around the world. Meandering around the world is one of my favorite things. What are you going to say, Alistair? Do you have a guess? Oh, I was going to say, is this, is this why you, uh, you said to in- ubiquity and beyond? Uh-huh. This is exactly oh. why I said to ubiquity and beyond. So to spoil the big topic that I've been hiding from you guys, although we're not going to talk about it probably, we might have to do a part two because I really didn't actually get <laughs> as much on this topic as I was planning to as much focus which is totally fine because it's going to be a super interesting episode anyways so i was going to do a podcast episode on astrobiology which is the study and search for life on other planets Mm -hmm. yeah but what's really cool about astrobiology is that a lot of the research for it happens on earth you're actually a lot of the research is centered around finding these sort of analog environments they're called where on Earth that are just these extreme environments that are like we hope or think might be like what something would have to experience on another planetary body and searching for life there and seeing how it survives. And so what all of this really ends up falling under, though, is the domain of microbiology, because, you know, we're not really looking for humans on other planets because humans can only survive between like 
20 and 40 degrees Celsius on a good day, you know? (laughs) Like, we don't have a lot of range for life and existence, but microbes have a huge diversity and range. So I essentially Googled astrobiology at McGill to see if I could find anybody or, like, see... I don't know. I was just looking to see what's up at McGill. And um, they have a whole McGill Space Institute astrobiology program and stuff. So I found this professor... Yeah, so her name is Dr. Nagisa Mamudi. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences, and she studies geomicrobiology. Cool. So, I'm assuming you guys want to know what geomicrobiology is? Can I can I take a stab at it? Yeah, you can guess. I was waiting for you to get there because I was going to ask, but yeah. <laughs> is, okay. it, is it the microbiology of geodes? Um, <laughs> like, how... how biological things interact with rocks and the earth the like earth as in rocks and soil and stuff like if you think about like lichens and how they attach to rocks and kind of feed off of rocks go listen to our lichens episode yeah that's what i think Um, it is kind of but not really i think that's a really good guess okay and fun fact i used to actually work in a geomicrobiology lab Really? But I don't even, yeah, yeah. When I was in my undergrad, I did like a four uh, month summer stint in a geomicrobiology lab as well. So that was the other really cool thing about interviewing her and talking to her. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to play this clip for you guys. Uh, that's a good question. So geomicrobiology is really, I mean, if you take the two words, it's the intersection of geology and microbiology. Um, And so the study is really just the focus of microbes with their environment. Uh, And so some geomicrobiologists study microbes that live in soils, say in forests. Some might study them that live in, uh, you know, like uh, mines and look at acid mine drainage. Uh, Some look at it in rivers. I look at it in the ocean. So it's really just the study of microbes that live in the natural world and how they interact with that environment. Broadly, I am very interested in what microbes eat. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they eat contaminants. And so part of our research group, they focus on studying microbes that eat petroleum and other contaminants. Um, And the application of that is trying to clean up contaminated environments. So, you know, thinking about like the Deepwater Horizon spill, other oil spills, a lot of that can get cleaned up using the natural microbes in the system. Um, So that's sort of one focus of my research area. Uh, and then another one is uh, looking at what microbes are eating of say contaminants are not there. And when contaminants are not in the system, they eat natural carbon. Uh, and so we also study how and why microbes eat certain compounds found in the ocean. And this is relevant because microbes in the ocean breathe out CO2 like us, right? So we inhale oxygen, we breathe out CO2, they do the same thing. But if you think about how big the ocean is, they're doing this on such a massive scale that they are a major flux of CO2 into the atmosphere. And so it's a really important question for the global carbon cycle and also thinking about climate change and how when we shift the balance of carbon in the ocean, how these microbes that eat carbon and respire CO2, how they're gonna respond to say, warmer ocean conditions or more acidic conditions. I feel like you weren't a million miles away, Alistair. Yeah, I was right. Yeah. I also find it interesting that, like, talking about uh, contaminants and stuff is kind of along your lines of work. Like, you're doing it from a very different point of view, but, like, you're also trying to study 
contaminants mm -hmm. in the in the world. Yeah, it's got me thinking about. I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's someone that's looking at this, but my work is on um, toxic elements like arsenic and lead, and how maybe you could have microbes that eat up those heavy metals. Oh, don't say heavy metals. Uh, quick side note: <laughs> heavy metals aren't a thing. I'm trying to okay. eliminate that from my vocabulary. I feel like this is this is uh, another episode yeah. about heavy metals. That's no, I can say it really quickly. Basically, what is a heavy metal? How do you how do you define a heavy metal? All metals are heavy. They have certain densities. They range, you know. It, there's no yeah, that's cut and dry answer. Yeah, for like what a heavy at metal what is. exact molar mass does it cut off and become heavy? Precisely. Anyway, yeah. that's super interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, so the answer to, to the question of spells. what is geomicrobiology is just microbes chilling in their environment, which yeah. is kind of fun Doing and cool. Doing thing. Yeah, and so Dr. Mahmoudi studies them in the ocean, as she mentioned, and looks at them in response to how they consume petroleum and other carbon compounds, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've heard about her research or similar research after there was the big Maybe it was the Deepwater Horizon spill or one of the big oil spills. Yeah. And they were talking about sending out bacteria to gobble up all of the spilled oil. Yeah, so I was talking to her about this because I I wasn't expecting to do an episode on bioremediation and I wouldn't either classify this as an episode on bioremediation because it's really... I feel there's so much we could say. What's bioremediation? Bioremedi so bioremediation, the bio part of remediation is the fact that you use... Um, naturally occurring or deliberately introduced microorganisms to consume and break down environmental pollutants in order mm -hmm. to clean up a polluted site. Okay. I asked her about bioremediation and what, like, what, how we feel about or how promising microbes are as a method to clean up oil spills. So here's what she had to say about that. It's actually, depending on what the spill is and what the circumstances are, um, it is actually usually the go-to method, mm -hmm. um, you know, so for chlorinated compounds uh, in groundwater systems, it's very common. There's even companies that grow up large batches of microbes that you can then use on your site to clean it up. Wow. Uh, when we talk about oil spills in the ocean, um, using microbes is always sort of uh, the long-term approach that companies, the government, people use. Because if you think about an oil spill, there's only so much you can do in terms of trying to control it, right? It's like oil mm -hmm. in a large body of water. So you can try to mop it up or you know clean up some of it, but ultimately some of it's gonna sink to the bottom and it's gonna spread very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you think about using chemicals or other things to treat it, one of the issues with the Gulf of Mexico is yes, you know, they use this dispersant that made the microbes eat it up quick, quicker, but it's very toxic to marine life. Mm -hmm. So letting the microbes take care of it is the most like natural way to do it. And it's also the most cheapest way to do it, which, mm -hmm. you know, it's very favorable. Um, so it, it's definitely not even, I would say a promising technology. It is used as a technology. The question is just, can we use it everywhere and how long will it take? Mm -hmm. So like I said, in the Gulf of Mexico, it happened really fast. And I should just preface this and say, we can find microbes that degrade oil everywhere. In every ocean we go to, you can find them. The question is how quickly can they do it, right? Mm -hmm. So 
in Alaska with the Exxon Valdez spill, some of that oil is still not cleaned up. But in the Gulf of Mexico, it was really fast. Cool. I think it's interesting that she said that, like, these microbes exist everywhere. Like, yeah. there are microbes that eat up oil. Um, it's just how quickly do they do it? I, I always thought that these mm-hmm. were, you know, specially genetically engineered microbes. And, yeah, that's what and I they thought. might be, like, they might have some changes to them, but... I didn't necessarily think they were, like, genetically mm-hmm. engineered, but I thought they were, like, one particular type of bacteria that had been found in, like, some far-off location in the Earth. But to mm-hmm. know that, like, they exist everywhere, I think that was really interesting. Yeah, so that's the kind of, like, that's the kind of cool part and what I wanted to talk about about microbiology is and why I said to ubiquity and beyond so microbes which is like kind of a classification of multiple different organisms so it could be referring to bacteria it could be referring to archaea or it could be referring to just even like phytoplankton mm-hmm. or viruses so just very small small guys small things small living things. <laughs> small guys well are viruses alive that's a question oh yeah that's a good question small <laughs> small living and unliving things yes in the microscopic world you know they exist literally everywhere everywhere we have looked on earth cool we have found microbes so this is kind of What's really cool about microbes in the environment is that, and you can find them doing and pretty much everything and eating everything. So I think this, like she was saying, she studies microbes in the environment, but specifically interested in what they eat. And this is because microbes do consume, like you can find them in any ocean, as she was saying, and you can find them consuming Mm. all different types of carbon compounds. And even like some just digest mm-hmm. and reduce non-carbon compounds. So, so, so they're they're small hungry boys. Small hungry boys. <laughs> this is it. This is it. Yes, <laughs> microbes are small hungry boys, and specifically bacteria. I mean, I'm not as sure. Bacteria and archaea, I would say, are like the smallest and hungriest of boys. Viruses mm-hmm. typically like, I wouldn't classify viruses in the same. I mean, they can be found wherever you can find bacteria and archaea because viruses predominantly affect and or infect bacteria and archaea. What are archaea? Archaea are another like classification of a branch of the tree of life. They're very similar in like look to bacteria, but genetically they're quite distinct. So it's kind of like they're the if you know what a prokaryotic cell is, prokaryotics are the bacteria and archaea. They're very simple cells. They have kind of DNA floating around inside, but it's not really, they don't have any organelles okay. or major cellular structures within their cell. They're just small cells with a lipid bilayer membrane and DNA inside, and they pretty much run all of their metabolic and chemosensing processes along their membrane and within their cell body and they don't have like specified organelles for these things so bacteria and archaea are very similar in those Mm -hmm. two ways but uh if you look at like evolutionarily speaking they're two very distinct branches of the tree of life so they diverged a long time ago it's so weird that evolution has like done this twice yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's done everything a lot of times. Yeah, I guess. like I, I know, like I, 
don't know very much, but I know that like things like the eye, eyes have evolved several times in different animals in different ways, and then they end up doing the same job. And I don't know, evolution is just cool, man. Mm. So there's this thing called mm-hmm. convergent evolution, which is where something continuously evolves into the same thing, even if it comes from like different paths, you know? So this is kind of a similar idea of something evolving over and over again, but not from the same lineage. Uh-huh. Does that cool. make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this really weird, interesting biology theory about this is called carcinization. Which is an example of convergent evolution in which crustaceans evolve into a crab-like form from a non-crab-like form. So Mm. evolution has been consistently evolving crabs out of non-crabs. It's just like a thing it likes to do. Apparently crab forms must just be very favorable. So crabs have evolved like over and over again. That's really cool. (laughs) What's that meme that's like... You you don't know me until I reach my final form. <laughs> it's just a crab. Yeah, it is. It's just a crab. They've evolved like five different times. Interesting. Yeah. So convergent evolution. A weird uh, side topic. Let's try and get back to microbes. Yeah. I guess. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so no, that's okay. So archaea are just a d- different type of microbial life okay. form, and they're suspected to be much older than bacteria. I think. Mm-hmm. But archaea are often also found in very extreme environments. They're often, consi- there's a lot of archaea that are called extremophiles. So, oh, yes, extremophiles. I've heard of yeah. these. Yeah. So I asked uh, Dr. Mahmoudi about this because it's kind of a funny definition. It like depends on how you agree about defining things as extreme or not extreme. Because what might be extreme for a human, I guess, is just not extreme for whatever yeah, lives there, yeah. technically. Mm. But it's just, but like, I think essentially we... places that you wouldn't really like to go on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you probably don't want to go to a hydrothermal vent at the bottom of the ocean on holiday. Yeah, no. Where <laughs> the temperatures range from 90 degrees Celsius to 103 degrees Celsius, you know? Thanks, but I'm good. But there are things yeah. that do like to live there. That's where they've set up house you know i just i just had a weird thought though so i was gonna make a joke about extremophile being someone that likes to jump out of planes um <laughs> or you know who works for red bull not sponsored <laughs> just but if you want to sponsor us you can get in touch at phd32b at gmail.com <laughs> um but then i'm thinking do bacteria just have this equivalent of like you know some of them just like swimming around in the ocean but then some of them like that that extra rush that they get from going down to the <laughs> geothermal vents and you know you know risking their life I, this is i mean this is a bad analogy it's a bad analogy it's cute but it's a bad analogy <laughs> yeah <laughs> because yeah. even like even um people who are into extreme sports nobody lives in a par- like while parachuting i guess like that's not where they exist didn't chris solely. angel live in a glass box for like three months that's pretty extreme yeah, hardcore that's pretty extreme but like these like archaea and bacteria that live on the hydrothermal vents don't live anywhere else like that's oh, okay, there. Yeah, right. that's, that's their home. That's their like. Right. There are some I was reading that like their preferred temperature to live and grow at is between like 93 and 103 degrees Celsius, which is uh, m- inconceivable for most, pretty much any like mammalian species <laughs> cannot live at that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like these are temperatures that are just completely considered, previously considered to be like 
impossible for life to exist at because water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, right? So how do you have life where water is boiling? And um, apparently you can, and apparently you do. And it's at these hydrothermal vents, right? And they then also, like, at the bottom of the ocean, there's no sunlight. So how are these... How are they getting energy? How are they getting... How are they getting carbon? How are they getting food? And so they exist using this, like, extreme form of metabolism that where they use um, chemical compounds and these different types of like chemo metabolic processes to digest stuff that is spewed out of hydrothermal vents. So often like sulfur containing mm-hmm. compounds and convert it into energy. That's so cool. And then they grow in these mats on these hydrothermal vents, which allows other things to then feed on them. So they're still the primary producers of an ecosystem, just like plants are when you have sunlight. But instead of using sunlight, they're using chemicals and chemical synthesis to... Wow do primary production of energy. So I can um, play you guys a little clip from my interview, if you like, about extremophiles. So for a general audience, I would define an extremophile as microbes that live under conditions which to us would seem extreme or out of the ordinary. So, you know, for example, humans can only live at certain temperatures. We're not gonna be able to survive if it's 80 degrees Celsius outside, but some microbes like thermophiles love that. And if you bring them into the lab and you try to grow a thermophile at room temperature, it dies because Mm -hmm. it's really happy at 80 degrees or 90 degrees or 100 or whatever that temperature range for the organism is. So I would say an extremophile is it, it, it lives under some sort of set of conditions which to us appear to be very extreme and it could be temperature ph um you know pressure all sorts of different parameters and so a lot of people that study geomicrobiology you know they're depending on what environment they're looking at to us that environment may seem very extreme mm-hmm. um, and then in terms of astrobiology the relevance is um thinking about life on other planetary bodies um, and what conditions and okay so when i say what conditions i mean the conditions this is all from like a very human perspective do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Um, when we think about say life on mars or one of these other you know um, potential habitable worlds the conditions are extreme to us but they might not be extreme to microbes Mm -hmm. And so that's where the study or interest in extremophiles in geomicrobiology intersects with astrobiology. Because if we can find microbes that can survive at, say, 120 degrees Celsius or minus 30 degrees Celsius, then if we go to another world where it's really hot or really cold and we can't live there, that doesn't mean there's no life on that planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that sort of opens up and broadens our, you know, view into what can live in these different places if we look at it from the view of microbes from these extremophiles. Cool. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. It makes me it makes me think that like we can, ex- if we can expand our definition of what is a habitable world, then there's the potential that a lot more planets that are closer to us than previously thought are potentially habitable for microbes. Yeah. Well, def- yeah, definitely. I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, the thing is, like, 
like I mentioned, everywhere we've looked on Earth, we find microbes, even if it is at 100 degrees Celsius under the extreme pressure of the ocean at these hydrothermal vents doing chemosynthesis, or like, like at the Antarctic growing on ice, so Mm -hmm. negative 30, negative 40 degrees, there will be microbes that live there. That's their home, you know? Mm -hmm. But despite that, we still haven't found microbes on another planet, even though it may seem like there might be a potential based on what we know about how life can persist on Earth. So it was a really interesting conversation from that side of things. I think one of the other challenges, though, is that, like, we're looking at a lot of these planets with telescopes, not microscopes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you can't mm-hmm. see the mic... I call them the microbe gang. <laughs> From an episode of the Magic School Bus, they uh, learn how pickles are made, and they go check out the microbe gang, doing all of the, <laughs> the pickling processes. I thought it was your new band name. No, it, it should be, though. I should start a band called the microbe gang. Ellison and I will get together and, and make it biology yeah. music anyway but um you know it's hard to see microscopic organisms when you're looking through a telescope yes yeah yeah that's true something that's de- designed to look for pretty big things will struggle with looking for very small things could you imagine though a telescope where like you you can just zoom in on the planet and just zoom in all oh the way god. to the uh <laughs> microbiology oh my gosh yeah that would be so like i just can't even imagine that, that kind of technology so cool. how would you <laughs> the magnification of that telescope it would just be unreal right <laughs> i think physically it would be impossible but uh yeah i don't know like i don't know much about telescopes but it would certainly be a challenge yeah it mm-hmm. makes me think of a, a video i saw that's also a book that my dad had and it starts out with a woman lying in a grass mm-hmm. field. And then it, if you, that's the middle page. And then if you flip backwards through the book, it zooms out. So then it's the field, the city block, the place that she's in, the country, like the globe, the mm-hmm. solar system. And it goes all the way out, the video at least, goes all the way out to the universe, the observable universe. Yeah. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's talking about powers of scale. And so it's like 10 to the 22 yeah. or whatever it is. Um, light years. And then it zooms in, and then it goes into our hand, and it goes into the cell, into the hair fiber, like it all the way down to the nucleus of the atom, and then into the, into the nucleus and to the quarks, at the you mm-hmm. know ten to the minus twenty two scale. So it just makes me think it would be cool if we had a telescope that could do that, you know, <laughs> zoom out and zoom all the way in. Yeah, that would mm-hmm. be, that would be really cool. But we've had like Mars rovers mm-hmm. and stuff, mm-hmm. and. Like, you could definitely, in theory, equip one of those with, like, a, a microscope. Yeah. So I did actually ask Dr. Mamoudi about why she might think we haven't found life yet on another planet, since mm. it seems so easy. It's so easy to find life on Earth, you know? <laughs> Just look anywhere, you'll find it, right? Yeah. But why, even, like, like, with microbial life, why haven't we found it? And so I thought she had a really interesting answer for this, and she does talk a little bit about the rovers as well, so... I'm just going to play this clip for you guys. So, I mean, we can find microbes ubiquitously all over the earth, wherever you look, and in these extremely hard to live in environments, according to humans. But we've, like, as far as I'm aware, there's never been any microbes found on any other planetary bodies. So do you think, like, 
what do you have this may be a more philosophical question but why do you think we haven't found microbes on other planetary bodies is it like a matter of they don't live there or is it a matter of difficulty of detecting or identifying what life looks like on another planet yeah so i would say this is totally a philosophical question <laughs> because uh, i think it probably depends on who you ask so i i agree with you in the sense that i think it's hard for us to know what to look for and then the other challenge is getting access to samples do you know what I mean? So we've only been to the moon. We've never even been to Mars. So I think if there were to say be a mission to Mars and you were to be able to go, you know, in the subsurface of Mars and collect cores or get lots of sediment, there is a good chance you might find life, regardless of, you know, how we look at it or how we assess it. That's sort of, I think, a secondary question, but just getting access to it is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you have rovers now on Mars. But, you know, the first few rovers that we sent out there, I think Viking was one of the first ones where, you know, they sent, sent them out there looking for signals for life. And it was just really hard. And some of the experiments they set up to do on the rover didn't work. And it, it's, it was just really, really challenging. So I think we're getting to a place where, you know, the technology is better. Mm -hmm. So when rovers go out there, they are able to do a lot more than they could say 50 years ago. And then the second question then becomes, well, what should we tell them to look for? Mm -hmm. and this is really like the million dollar question is, should we send them out there to look for DNA? Because I think if you send them out there to look for DNA and you find a strand of DNA and it's ATGC, those four nucleotides, I would say that's contamination because what are the chances of life on another planet using the exact same, you know, like molecular fingerprint as us? Uh, so then it becomes really, really difficult as to how, how do you look for life? Um, and I think a lot of the work some people are now doing is that, uh, from my understanding of it, because this is not my field, because mm -hmm. a lot of this gets into really hardcore computational stuff and modeling, is that we're not going to just find one signal. So it's not going to be like, um, oh, if we find DNA, we find life or if we find amino acids, we find life. I think it's gonna be a combination of, if we find these signals above the background, this might signify some sort of biology being there. I have always wondered that, like, I kind of get it and I kind of don't. Like, when we look for life on other planets, we base ourselves off the mm -hmm. earth and I'm like on the one hand I get it because like this is what we know we know that this recipe works in at least one case and we have no other recipes to look for mm -hmm. so it makes sense that we look for that but like equally I don't see necessarily any particular reason why we would know or why we would think that this is the only way of doing it or that this is a particularly great way of doing it like i think that's i think that was a really interesting response yeah. that she gave I, thought yeah. it was, I liked how she said that if we found dna and it was actg that's more evidence for contamination than finding life because yeah what are the chances yeah. that you know uh, life on another planet would use yeah the same base pairs and like that is really the question right like like beth says it's not 
we know this recipe works, but do other recipes work? Like that is the mm-hmm. that is the million dollar question I think of this yeah. topic is like how do we know what life will look like on other planets? Like is Earth the only formula for life? It has to like ATGC this sort of molecular life that we see with lipid bilayer membranes and enzymes and mm-hmm. RNA and DNA. Is this the only way that life can spontaneously arise? Or are there completely other, like, chemical compositions that we wouldn't even be able to think of that could indicate, that could be contributing to life, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another interesting thing that she mentioned was sampling is really difficult. Mm -hmm. Because especially if we're going to Mars, like, it's a one-way trip. We don't have those rovers come back. Um, And I think we mentioned this in an earlier episode briefly, but... Uh, NASA has just sent out the Perseverance rover to Mars, Mm -hmm. and it's going to be the first Mars mission that collects samples for later retrieval. So it's going Mm -hmm. to actually drill into the soil and cap a little capsule, and then leave it on the surface of the soil of Mars so that a future mission can retrieve those sample capsules and we can actually bring back soil from Mars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Why have they done it like that instead of assuming that whichever mission they send to get it can do that job i think because um it's expensive it's expensive to sample soils and then it's also expensive to i mean we just don't have the technology to have a retrieval so they're doing it now because there's the technology to you know bottle some samples and then at a later date when the technology is there to do a return mission you know or even a manned mission they can send someone out and he can like or she can pick up all of the little capsules. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I still don't get why they have to do it in two trips, but a crewed mission, sorry. Um, yeah, if we have a crewed mission to Mars with people going and collecting the samples, that's a nice way of hopefully preventing any contamination of people material into the samples because they didn't actually collect them themselves. They've already mm-hmm. been bottled. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And it's probably also like if they're collected in 2025 or whenever the mission's supposed to get there and then it's 30 years later that we actually get a crewed mission to mars or, or retrieval there's still samples from you know 30 years previously yeah mm-hmm. it would be interesting mm-hmm. to, to compare mm-hmm. the two yeah. yeah that's so true then you have like the time course as well so yeah i thought i thought the other thing she mentions that's really interesting and a super important point is this idea that then we really can't just look for one thing. It has to be kind of a collection of signals that just seems too rare to like mm-hmm. be just the natural chemistry of the planet, I think. And it would have to be like a collection of things that point towards there some, being some sort of biotic process going on producing them. So mm-hmm. I thought this was really interesting because it does bring up this idea of, I don't know about you guys, but when I think about a signal for life on other planets, a lot of the research that I've heard about or known or what gets popularized in the media is the idea of looking for water on other planets because Mm -hmm. according to earth and according to humans, water is pretty much Mm -hmm. like you cannot have life without water. Right. This is this Mm -hmm. whole idea of astrobiology. And if you even go on like Mm -hmm. NASA's website, they have like these graphic novels about astrobiology. And that's like in one of their graphic novels. I read all of these (laughs) in preparation for this episode. (laughs) I read a bunch of like, NASA graphic Mm. novels about the search for life on other planets and like that's cool part of it is about searching for water because as far as we know life really can't exist without water so I asked her what she thought about that 
So this was going to bring me, this like leads perfectly into my next question or thought, which was about the search for water on other planets, because there's this idea that um, life needs water to survive. So do you think like, obviously you just said, if we find water, but we don't find life, but do you think anywhere we go looking for life, there has to be water? Or do you think maybe this is again, more of like a human and earth centric view of what we're looking for in life on other planets? Yeah, that's a good question. I, it's really hard to answer that because we can go to very dry places on earth and find life. Mm-hmm. So I, even on earth, we can find life in places with very, very, very little water or very dry places like say deserts, you know what I mean? Um, like the Atacama desert. So the question is how much water? I don't know how much water, but apparently microbial life can even survive on earth with very little water. Um, but yeah, water is really interesting because like, I remember when I was in high school, we didn't know of anywhere having water. And now we know that Mars potentially had like rivers running through it. Um, Mm -hmm. and now we have these ocean worlds, which is like Europa and Titan. And we think they have these subsurface oceans. So, you know, there's no oceans that we can see. We think that there's potentially say an ice cover, but below the ice cover, there's a vast ocean. So then it becomes really interesting because it's like, well, yeah, all this time we thought you just need water. Well, what if you go to this place that has an ocean underneath ice? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they don't have sunlight. So those microbes have to make do with other forms of energy. And that's again, where a lot of people who study microbes in the ocean have intersected with the search for life because a lot of these environments, like say on Titan uh, or Europa, are similar to say studying something at the bottom of the ocean on Earth. How Mm -hmm. does life live there when it's completely away from sunlight and you don't have your typical energy and nutrient sources? Um, So I think in terms of our chances of finding life, I personally think our highest chance is gonna be in one of the ocean worlds. Just because when we think about where life started and how life started and those opportunities, it just seems like it would be, you know, in in a place with a lot of water. Just damn cool, just to start with. Yeah, that um, reminds me of a, I went, there was a department Mm -hmm. talk with someone from NASA and they were talking about the candidates for potential finding of life. And they were mm-hmm. talking about the moons of Saturn, Jupiter, Jupiter, Titan, Jupiter. Yeah. The, the the moons of Jupiter. And then I also heard a talk, and I don't know who it was. I think they were also from NASA, but it was through the physics department, and it was about life on other worlds. And I went in thinking she was going to talk about you know this research that they've been doing and what they found on these these planets. And then she spent the whole thing talking about the ocean floor. And I was just a little bit disappointed, but also super intrigued because it was like, oh, we don't need to like, I mean, it'll be cool when we do find life on other worlds, but um, we can find interesting life on Earth. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no, that is, uh, it is so interesting how much space research is so connected to research on Earth. I think that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of that, she kind of mentioned um, a point about looking at these ocean worlds because of where we know life started on Earth and how life started there. Yeah. So I did follow up and ask her about that because I was curious if she was referring to like the um, 
primordial soup theory or what she was referring to about where life started. So I will play that clip for you guys now. So on Earth, we think, you know, the primordial soup theory, which was like shallow ponds on the surface of the Earth, and those were ponds. But the other theory that's really been picking up a lot more steam over the last, say, 10 or 20 years is the fact that life started in hydrothermal vents. Mm. Right. So life started in the bottom of the ocean in these hydrothermal vents. We know that microbes live there now. They can use uh, chemicals that come out of those vents as energy. Um, there was a recent study that even showed, actually the speaker came to McGill and gave a talk at the McGill Space Institute, wow. but she studied, um, you know, one of the questions is, okay, well, if it started in hydrothermal vents, where would they have gotten the building blocks for life? And she did experiments in the lab and the synthesis or the formation of amino acids uh, mm. under the conditions of a hydrothermal vent. So you could potentially have life start there because she sh was showing a mechanism for some of these building blocks, or I think it was a sil single building block, but still that it could abiotically form there. So yeah, so we don't know, but I think there's more and more evidence that suggests that it might have started in the at the bottom of the ocean and these hydrothermal systems wow uh which again makes me think uh, that's one of the other reasons why i think of ocean worlds is if we think about it on earth um you know when we think about like life on earth as being this very inhospitable place three or four billion years ago where it's constantly being bombarded then you know would life start there or would it start in some place more calm at the bottom of the ocean I had not heard that theory. Mm. That's a very interesting theory. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't either. I think I, yeah, I had known about the hydrothermal vents, but I didn't realize that that was a new theory for where life could have started. Yeah, that's really cool. So it was really interesting mm -hmm. to hear about the abiotic synthesis of an amino acid at a hydrothermal vent being possible, yeah. because this is kind of... I don't know how much you guys know about the primordial soup theory. So the primordial soup theory is that you just had this kind of like stuff, water, but like with chemicals in it that was constantly being bombarded by lightning. And because we didn't have much of an atmosphere at the time, but there was lots of lightning and okay. other things happening. Yeah. And this, so if you had all these kind of like very basic starting chemicals, this guy showed the Miller-Urey experiment. So essentially they just used like this uh, solution composition that had all of these different chemicals that were kind of these abiotic things that would be expected to be on kind of a long time ago Earth. And they put it in this glass jar that was like sterilized and isolated. So there was no life in this glass jar. And then they would just apply like electrical shocks mm -hmm. to stimulate, simulate lightning on this to see if you could get the formation of biological compounds or things that we think were necessary for the early formation of life from just like electrical chemical synthesis of what we believe would have existed like just naturally without life on earth mm -hmm. way back before and so they found that you could get mm -hmm. the synthesis of a bunch of different amino acids just by having all of these initial chemical compounds plus electricity That's amazing. so this was kind of what led to this primordial soup theory but yeah it was interesting mm -hmm. to hear about this more recent theory which 
I think like it does make total sense that if you do have a really um, dynamic and dangerous to live in world up top, why would you start trying to like create life at the surface of the ocean or at the surface of the earth where you're mm, that's true constantly being bombarded with meteors and <laughs> lightning and all of this stuff when you could just like rest and relax at the bottom of the ocean where you get all of this nice chemicals being spewed out and like it was an interesting theory i didn't um so resting and relaxing at mm. the bottom of the ocean makes me think of um sebastian from the little mermaid oh. <laughs> <laughs> under the sea it's where life started exactly i think the speaker that she was talking about is the one that i saw makes sense maybe they did their rounds <laughs> yeah they did a, did a tour yeah. it was a really interesting talk i went into it thinking it was going to be about mm-hmm. space but then yeah i it was really fascinating and the idea that like you can create amino acid like yeah. molecules mm-hmm. at the bottom of the ocean in extreme conditions yeah is yeah super cool yeah for sure yeah, I know it's amazing mm-hmm. all of the places that life can just survive, but like thinking how how and where and under what conditions it even started. Honestly, it's kind of amazing that we can mm-hmm. even ask mm-hmm. these questions and think about ways to like try and answer them. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting as a subject too, because here we are, a biologist, a chemist, and a physicist. <laughs> Walk into a bar. And astrobiology is almost the like, perfect intersection of all of our disciplines because to study astrobiology you really need all three like you're looking at space and you're looking at other planets and a lot of this is like physics and physicists doing this type of science but then you also have chemistry because you're looking at chemical compounds of what you suspect to be early chemical compounds on like ancient planets Mm -hmm. and like earth before there was life you're also trying to like determine the chemical composition of other planets using telescopes. Yeah. And then you have the biologists coming in too and taking this information that we learn from chemists and physicists and saying, well, based on what we know about life on Earth, like, is it possible that these could be conditions for yeah. life? What do we know about life and how could these play a role in that? It's like the recent discovery, like, I don't know when this episode's going to go out, but at least when we're recording this, there was a recent discovery of phosphine on Venus. Is that what it was? Phosphine, I think. Yes. I'm so glad you bring this up, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> because um, I don't know anything about it. I'd never heard of the chemical before a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. But everyone was getting excited that, like, it was NASA, it was physicists. I think who discovered the existence of this chemical in the atmosphere of Venus, mm-hmm. but like obviously it's a chemical, and so it falls under the remit of chemists to study the chemical and understand its behavior and its structure and blah blah blah. But like it's something that we only know of as being produced in either like industry or mm-hmm. biological processes on the Earth, so then that's where biologists enter i think that's it's such a nice union of like the three yeah like most commonly thought of sciences like there are other sciences as well yeah but our three at least Mm -hmm. i think that's really interesting so this is exactly why i wanted to do this episode so i had also seen that paper on phosphine and then also like a week later there was a paper in just the archive 
about glycine also being determined by spec in the atmosphere of Venus. So I was like, whoa, this is super exciting. Like, what microbes are living yeah. in the atmosphere of Venus? Because now we have two signals. And so I asked uh, Dr. Mahmoudi about this on our interview, because as she is a geomicrobiologist, but she has so much knowledge about astrobiology. And so she knew about these papers. Right. You had to take mm-hmm. the opportunity. Yeah. And she's involved. She's part of the McGill Space Institute. So she had heard about this and mm-hmm. the, it was just like, I'll play it for you. It's really fun. So you're going to be shocked. Okay. So phosphine or these gases, um, they're, they're more of like, um, it goes back to this thing of say DNA, right? It's like mm. they're measuring one thing and saying, hey, we know that life may make this on earth. So if we find it on this other planet or we find it on Venus, maybe life was making it there. Um, so the Venus paper, the other thing that's actually happened that I saw this week on Twitter, I don't know if it's even published, is that the data, the spec data um, that they used to detect the phosphine was actually apparently an error. So oh. yeah, so it's not oh, no. even phosphine. <laughs> it's some, it's something, and I can send it to you because I told yeah. this. Oh my gosh. Um, but like the thing is, I may have seen it on Monday, but I've just spent so much time on Twitter and CNN this week that it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that actual phosphine data, it might not even be phosphine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we need, yeah, so the phosphine data, I, I think what we need to do is be careful because even on Earth, we know that there might be abiotic processes that can make phosphine, and mm-hmm. we don't know the chemistry of the planet. So I don't think it's going to be as easy as being like, oh, here is one molecule that this organism makes or that organisms make that, um, you know, we find on this other planet. I actually asked this question of someone who studies like evolution and life on earth in a reading group years ago. And the reason I asked this was because when I was I don't know, in high school, it was always like, oh, if we find water on Mars or water on other planets, that means there's life there. Mm-hmm. And then we found water. And obviously, like, that doesn't mean there's life there. And then it was like, oh, if we find, like, reduced nitrogen, which is something else that life needs, well, we found reduced nitrogen on Mars. And so, uh, or organics, that was the other thing. If we can find organics, like, it's always like the bar keeps going up. Uh, I asked this person, I said, you know, we found, I think we're talking about the reduced nitrogen paper. And I said, is this like a biosignature? Like, what would you consider a biosignature? And he said, I would only consider a molecule a biosignature if it's something so distinct and so earthly that only earth organisms would make it like, uh, like cholesterol or like, do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Some sort of very unique molecule and I think something like phosphine gas is not unique enough mm-hmm. and it might be that if you combine phosphine gas with other gases maybe that would give you a signature but I think it's really hard to just go by one thing yeah or one signal that's super that's that's a really good point mm-hmm. there's a couple of yeah. things I was thinking about when I think it's interesting that she mentioned um that on Twitter, she's seen that maybe there was an error in the in the reporting of the data. I think that's so. She did. Mm-hmm. She sent me the article for it. It is published on archive, uh-huh. 
So it's called No Phosphine in the Atmosphere of Venus. And essentially they looked at the spec data mm -hmm. from this paper that had published saying there was phosphine and find that there's fundamental issues in the analysis and interpretation of the spec data mm. having to do with both like just problematic like baseline calibration issues and just being unable to distinguish between the possibility of a phosphine peak versus a sulfur dioxide peak. Mm -hmm. So it seems like everything that they've mm -hmm. presented as phosphine could actually just be explained by a much more like typical sulfur dioxide level in the atmosphere. Right. Well, that's, and we kind of touched on this a lot on the podcast, but yes. like, that's a great thing about science is even the peer review process can be flawed and a paper can be published with, you know, questionable data, but then people, other scientists come and, and question it and, you know, scrutinize it. That was basically my question. My question was going to be, is this an example of good science or bad science? Mm. Because, like, I don't know whether that's a good question to ask, but that's how I framed it. Because, like, in the sense that bad science would be that they just hyped this up and didn't bother to put any effort into, like, calibrations and analyzing their data properly and blah, blah, blah. But, like, good science would be they made mistakes, which happens, and they published like cautiously saying these are our results but like equally you know like there could be mistakes here and there um like in these places whatever and then like the second step of good science would be for somebody else to go and take that and be like no in our scientific opinion this is unlikely to be accurate so is it good science or is it bad science, i would i would argue that it sounds like it's good science in that it's science working in a good way mm -hmm. you know maybe maybe they were not as thorough in their methods in the in the original paper but in the broader community of science it's the community working to scrutinize yeah, questionable yeah. things and point out flaws i think it's like I think it's dangerous to try and like classify science as good or bad mm. all the time like obviously there are some there are some things that just aren't science, right? Like okay, that's there's fine. sort of these like fake journals and fake articles that come out and haven't actually really done science. But when people do do science, like this type of thing occurs and it's almost impossible to ever determine whether it's because of like just the severe and like severely overlooking something fundamental about your data. Maybe because mm -hmm. you had positive bias and because people are human and even scientists are human and they want they want to find something exciting, right? So, right, it's, yeah. But yeah. I think it is an example of kind of a definitely a good example of the critical thinking of the scientific community that somebody then took their data and okay. reanalyzed it and said, well, actually, this is yeah. a, like a much more likely explanation. It doesn't look like your data actually supports what you said it did. Mm -hmm. But we don't know why they said yeah. it, like we don't know what happened or what went wrong for them, but. At least it's kind of been, it seems to be getting corrected, you know, like Alistair is saying. That's fair. Yeah. One other thing that uh, she touched on in that clip was that, you know, when the fixed nitrogen was found, which I didn't know actually mm -hmm. we found fixed nitrogen on Mars. Reduced. Sorry, reduced. Reduced nitrogen. nitrogen. When she mentioned that they had found reduced nitrogen on Mars and she was at a, a conference talking to someone about that. It, it reminded me of a thought I had earlier that I don't think we will find life on Mars and it's going to be headlines the next day. 
you know, like yeah. photos yeah. photos of mm-hmm. the little bacteria <laughs> that we found on Mars. Because I think it's it's going to be a very gradual process for finding life on any other planet. And we're going to find mm-hmm. these signatures, these biomarkers, maybe a DNA-like substance. But is it DNA? But it could be DNA. It uses different base pairs. And then it's kind of going to be this gradual thing until we have enough evidence that it's kind of like, okay, yeah, there is what we're going to call Martian life because it's different than human life. You know, like, yeah. it's never going to yeah. be... that's fair. It's going to be, oh no, yeah. I shouldn't use this analogy. It's going to be like how we found out about the U.S. election. It's going to be over a long period of time, <laughs> and everyone's going to be on the edge of their seats. Oh, God. Um, and we're going to have to count every single count piece of every piece of evidence. <laughs> Stop the you know? spectroscopy! Stop the spectroscopy! <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Like, it's going to have to be, a, like, it is always going to be a cumulative effort of, what we understand about the yeah. planet or planets that we're looking at and what could possibly chemically lead to whatever we're finding and things yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. And it, I like, it still just brings me back to the idea of how, like it's going to completely probably change how we even define life because yeah. Yeah. we don't have a good definition for it on earth yeah. <laughs> no. as, as it yeah. is. Right. And like, so if we find something that uses completely different chemical substances and compounds but that looks like life that has maybe metabolism and like catalyzes reactions quicker than they would occur without it you know how do we then classify that as life does it have to have dna does it have to like what if it reproduces but in a completely different way Mm -hmm. you know these are all questions that we're gonna have to i think these are all going to be important questions if we do ever kind of identify something that looks lifelike on another planet because I don't, I don't think it will look like life on Mm. earth, but. And I think like when I was younger, I naively thought if we were to find life on other planets, we'd, you know, land on the planet and, and break through the ground. And all of a sudden below would be the subterranean world of alien (laughs) people, you know, or or organisms, you know, dog-like things jumping around. (laughs) Um, And that's kind of how in, in popular media, you know, you think of like Star Trek or you think of all these other um, programs where they're discovering life on other planets it's, you know, what we... It's always humanoid. It's always humanoid or, or an, yeah, animalioid. Yeah, yeah. Like, they look yeah, like animals yeah. and humans. Think of Star Wars. like Doctor mm-hmm. Who, definitely. Such fantastical yeah. planets and, and creatures. But at the end of the day, Chewbacca just kind of looks like a large hairy man. Kind of looks like, exactly. you know, a Sasquatch. <laughs> like, so it's not going to happen that way. It's going to happen through finding mic- macromolecules and microbiota and microbes. Yeah. I wanted to say one more thing, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like we've like really got into full podcast digression here, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> um, okay, so my comment was in particle physics, especially in like the LHC, they're just gathering so much data. Like they're just they've kind they're kind of. Each team is like looking for something specific, sure, fine, but like they are gathering so much data and just of so many different kinds of things that there is this effect called the look elsewhere effect. And um, basically the point is that if you do something enough times, like we've already discussed in the past how particle physics measurements are typically made that like you expect a certain number of events and then if you see more then you think well there's something new going on here that I 
don't expect or fewer events or whatever like you look for a different number than you were expecting um but like if you do the same thing enough times then you expect some weird things here and there like I think uh I was listening to an audiobook by Tim Harford which is called How to Make the World Add Up I think it's called and he gave this example of Darren Brown who I don't know if you guys know but he's like a psychologist in the UK like um he does like magic tricks yeah in you animals. mentioned him on your ghost episode actually right yeah anyway I think it was him uh who flipped a coin and there's a, like a video of him flipping a fair coin 10 times like and getting heads 10 times in a row and it's a fair coin and it's like wow that's not you know that's very unlikely um I don't know what half to the power of tennis but anyway it's very unlikely but like actually what you haven't seen is that he's been doing it like the whole day right mm-hmm. and so like okay 10 heads if you sit there and you get a coin and like the first 10 flips that you get are all heads sure that's very unlikely but like in however many millions of flips that you do to get 10 in a row is actually quite likely yeah so like if you are looking in the whole universe and you're looking for loads and loads of different signatures, then it's quite likely that somewhere at some time you will find one of those things, even if life doesn't exist anywhere other than Earth. Mm. So I think um, it's just really interesting to like work out, as she said, like where your bar is for saying that you found a biological signature Mm -hmm. yeah this is honestly like the same in um biology when you have any sort of like dna or rna sequencing data because you're sequencing so many things like you're getting thousands and thousands of unique sequences that you're then comparing to thousands and thousands of other unique sequences you're yeah. always going to find a difference between your two groups. Yeah. And so we yeah. always have to like do this statistical thing where you correct for the fact that you're testing so many times. Like you're doing a statistical test on so many different things so many times right. that you really have to like pretty much r- continue to raise your bar higher and higher until you hit a point where you're like, okay, now the certainty that what we're finding is not kind of just like a Ooh. random oddity, but actually an oddity that is important now we're pretty sure we've eliminated all of just the random oddities that arise when you have a thousand coin flips right yeah yeah like when you have a thousand coin flips you are gonna have 10 heads in a row probably but if you flip a coin a thousand times and you have 30 heads in a row like maybe then you want to start looking at whether your coin is weighted on one side and going to yeah and if you do it a lot yeah and then, like, it's interesting because the limits that we set, like, the, the statistical limits, like, now we're getting into the nerd stuff, but mm-hmm. the statistical limits that we set are so arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And I think in different fields, they, they're they very different. Um, yeah. But it's just, I, I don't know. It's just all very well, it's just more Yeah, it's just probabilities, really. We're just, like, setting different probability levels. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So do you have a quiz for us, Sienna? 
Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I can make one up. I always forget about the quizzes. This is, like, the silliest thing. It's the only thing we do every episode, and it's the only thing that I forget every episode, so. It's my favorite part. It's not the only thing that we do every episode. We also introduce ourselves every episode, but Alice sometimes forgets that. That's true. Well, while Sienna Sienna figures out some questions, I'm going to do something that we do every episode and plug our social medias. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Go and check us out on Facebook at Not Yet a Doctor. That's Not Yet a Dr. And we have Instagram and Twitter as well, and that's Not Yet a Dr. And we also have an email that you can email us at phd32b at gmail.com. That's phd32b at gmail.com. Also, mm-hmm. please don't forget to go and like and subscribe to our. Um, feed on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts if it allows mm-hmm. it really it. helps it out yeah mm-hmm. and before we do the quiz i also just wanted to thank dr nagisa Moody for the interview because she was like really interesting to talk to and um potentially we will release the full interview as well as like an extra little bonus yeah. thing if we have a, mm-hmm. ever do bonus things we may if that interests you because we talked a lot more too about her research on geomicrobiology the um microbes eating petroleum in the water what she did for her phd research how she got into the field so it's really interesting conversation and hopefully we get to release the whole thing um and i also wanted to mention that she is hiring right now so if you're a phd student and all of a sudden you're kind of interested in the fact that microbes live in the sea and everywhere in the sea and they eat huge carbon compounds and do all these cool things with metabolism and digestion of carbon and flux co2 into the water which are super important mm-hmm. so if this is the sort of research that interests you she is hiring students and you can find her website which she keeps up to date at geomicromcgill.com and you can also follow her on twitter at nagisa m we'll link so. it in our social Sweet. media in we our will. show notes mm-hmm. um i exactly. would like to add my thanks to to her not that i've ever met yes. her but She's contributed <laughs> to something that I've enjoyed. So, mm-hmm, me too. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Nikisa, uh, for letting me not do as much of the talking today. <laughs> <laughs> if you are not yet a doctor, but you would like to be interviewed, let us know. We can maybe work something out. Or if you are a um, doctor. Also, if you are a doctor. All right, quiz time. Let's do this quiz. <laughs> yes. So, I wanted to hear you guys' buzzers before we do this. Quiz. Okay. Oh. Um... Okay, I've got my buzzer noise. My buzzer noise okay, is, <laughs> and that's the microbes eating up oil and other things. Okay. Mine is beep 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 beep. That's the aliens. <laughs> that's what? That's the aliens. Oh, the aliens. Um, isn't it in Hitchhiker where they like talk about aliens making beep beep noises? Ah, uh, you and your Hitchhiker mm-hmm. references, Beth. Just on well, another plane. Well, you know it's. It's aliens. It has to be hitchhiking. Yes, you're right. Okay. So, question number one for um, as many points as you want. What is a microbe? Beep, 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 beep. I kind of heard both of you at the same time, but maybe Alistair first. So, I'm going to let him go first. Okay. Um, This is going to be for 60,000 points. And the answer (laughs) is that... A microbe is a small organism, potentially alive, although viruses are included in 
microbes, but they're, they're small things that eat things on Earth and potentially not on Earth. They're small hungry boys. Small <laughs> hungry boys. <laughs> Anything to add, Beth? Um, no, I think that was a, that was a pretty reasonable explanation. 60,000 points to I me. Think, yeah. 60,000 points to Alistair. I would add that they're like often bacteria or archaea as well. These are kind of like some of the main okay. domains of yeah. life yeah. that microbes occupy. Yeah, okay. Question number two for 60,000 points. What is geomicrobiology? Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Beth got there first. Let's go, Beth. It's the study of how uh, microbiology, so like microorganisms, interact with the geological environment that they find themselves in and in which they live. Exactly. I think that's, I think everyone will approve of that definition. That was perfect. So microbes in their environment. 60,000 points to me. (laughs) Yes, 60,000 points to Beth, 60,000 points to Alistair. We're currently tied up. We're neck and neck. Um, <laughs> Not to draw parallels, but this reminds me of a certain election that happened recently. Oh, <laughs> my God. Alistair, will you stop? Sorry, it's been on my mind a lot, okay? Yeah. It was a very stressful week. Legit. Let me think. What should my third tiebreaker question be? What is an analog environment? Beep, 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 beep. Okay, Beth, you go. I have no idea. I'm just going to guess. Okay. Uh, um, but I think maybe it's like an environment on Earth that like resembles an extraterrestrial environment. Yeah, you're exactly and right. And that you would then maybe uh. find microorganisms in. Mm-hmm. So the analog sites are the sites on Earth that you can study and look at the microbes that grow there because they're similar to maybe like sites that you'd be interested in studying on other planets. So like really hot, really Mm. dry sites, really cold, dry sites. I don't know. A lot of like deserts and rocky sites, you know, looking at microbes that live in rocks is common too. So anyways, just like environments that we think might be similar to environments that we would want to discover microorganisms in on other planetary bodies. And because mm-hmm. that one was really tough, I will give you guys an easy one, which is what, where, name, name a theory for how life developed on Earth. Beep, 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 beep. Okay, you can both pick, do one. So, Alistair, you can start, because Beth answered the last question. Okay, um, the, I'm going to pick the primordial soup theory, and mm-hmm. that's that there were a bunch of molecules and chemicals um in water and ponds on the surface of the earth that were zapped by lightning um and caused light to light caused life to form exactly and you beth what's your theory um the other theory that was mentioned but not my personal theory no (laughs) i realized after i said that um if i was in a creative mood i'd come up with my own personal theory but um I'm not sure if I can do that. Anyway, mm-hmm. the other theory that was mentioned was um, that life originated in these uh, hydrothermal vents mm-hmm. deep down in the ocean that are, like, really, really hot and um, might have been able to 
produce the chemical components that form the basis of life as we know it on this planet. Ding, ding, ding. You're both right. Looks Yay. like we're tied Yay. at the end of another quiz. How surprising. I definitely got an extra question. <laughs> oh, yeah. Beth, Beth was actually ahead. answered one more question. Yeah, by 60,000 We're not points. tied. You lose, Alistair. Oh. But good job, both of you. <laughs> I think we're all winners today, yeah. Yeah. actually. The prize is knowledge. Because it's fun to do this podcast. The prize is life itself. <laughs> um, Jeez. So, yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it was a little bit... Uh, disorganized compared to what my episodes normally are but I think it was fun to just get to talk with you guys about a few different disciplines and how they all interact and what it means for life yeah. both here and elsewhere and I highly recommend checking out the graphic novels on NASA's website about astrobiology they're very cute and very fun to read and they have a lot of information about this type of stuff we will link yeah. those as well mm-hmm. very interesting mm-hmm. I enjoyed the relaxed format mm-hmm. And I would love to tell you guys just before we go, because I know I got cut off earlier when I was talking about geomicrobiology and the old lab I used to work in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the reason why it was super interesting to get in touch with her and then realize that she was a geomicrobiologist by training and she studies what bacteria eat is because I used to study what bacteria eat. So in my undergrad, when I did my four month like summer um, undergraduate research in a lab, I was in this lab of Dr. Casey Huber at the University of Calgary, and I was studying these bacteria called TSSRBs, Mm -hmm. which are thermophilic, spore-forming, sulfate-reducing bacteria. Oh, cool. And so, (laughs) essentially, there's, like, there's a lot of words there, but they're, like, heat-loving, so they grow at, like, temperatures of, like, 50 degrees. Mm -hmm. And so thermophilic, spore forming, so they form spores when they're unhappy so that they just like kind of shut down and then they can revive again later when they're happier, kind of like what we talked about with lichen. And that's cool. um, Then they reduce sulfate. So they consume and reduce sulfate for energy. Cool. And Hmm. essentially, they're also from the bottom of the ocean. So this was like the really interesting thing. She obviously knew who my PI was because they're both like studying very similar things. They get like these mm-hmm. ocean cores of from, like they drop these huge sort of just like tubey tank things down to the bottom of the ocean that like press into the mud and just like take out a core of dirt and you bring them back up onto the boat. And both our labs do that sort of thing. And then you like can take different parts of the mud, put it in little containers and culture it in an incubator and you'll see bacteria come to life that had formed spores and so the reason for this in my research is because ours are thermophilic spore forming right so they actually they do live in sort of what's it called the bottom of the ocean below the bottom of the ocean in the mud they you can find these kind of like reservoirs of like hot oil cool um and so there's bacteria living and growing in there oil yes and this is why, like, they drill for oil in the bottom of the ocean. Mm. You can find because you can find these kind of like reservoirs wow. of oil, and it's very I mean, yeah, hot I down guess. there. I didn't realize that it was hot. Yeah, but yeah. And then so they grow in these places, but these also leak. So there's always like little leaks that like oil is coming out from the below the bottom of the ocean and kind of like coming up onto the seafloor. And with them comes mm-hmm. these bacteria, which get spewed up onto the seafloor, and then 
form spores and just disperse all over the seafloor. Cool. And so, wow. yeah, that's what I, I would take these seafloor sediments, revive their bacteria and feed them different carbon compounds and see how they ate. Biology is so cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Biology is really cool. It really is like ubiquitous. It's wild. Every yeah, like, the, the type and diversity of bacteria and like microorganisms that just do whatever they want. You know, like you think you can't find a bacteria doing something, but or a microorganism doing something, but you can. You just haven't looked in the right place <laughs> yet. So it was wild. So yeah, these ones would. It was funny because they were like, since they're reducing um, sulfur, they like end up producing like hydrogen sulfide gas so like when you're sampling from the bottles that they're in it's really it's stinky mm. because it smells like sulfur compounds yeah <laughs> so they're like little farting when, bacteria when you were saying that you can find microbes doing anything yeah my mind went to um don't be worried about computers doing your jobs be worried about microbes doing your jobs oh man <laughs> Yeah, maybe we can't, maybe anything was too big of a reach. We don't, yeah, we don't see microbes working nine to five in an office space yet, so. <laughs> but maybe we just haven't looked in the right offices Yeah, yet. maybe not. <laughs> I'm not quite, quite convinced about some of my colleagues, whether they're actually human. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you for joining in today. It was really fun. Yeah. Um, I'm going to close this off. So my name is Sienna. My name is Beth. And my name is Alistair. Thank you all for listening. And thank you, Ellison, for producing this lovely music that we just get to fade out to. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day and tune in next time. <laughs>